Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of this podcast that I've been doing with Tom Stecker. Uh, hi, Tom. How you hey, doing? Hey, Mike. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for making this happen. I really yeah, appreciate of course. it. Thanks for taking the time. So we've covered a couple of different topics, but they've all centered around education and the children that we are really responsible mm-hmm. for helping mm-hmm. to turn into responsible adults. Mm-hmm. So today what Tom and I are going to talk about is empathy and not only its importance on a grand scale, but really why it's something that needs to be a conscious effort. Mm-hmm. And we have to be very cognizant of it when we're working with young children. Mm-hmm. Mike, thanks so much. So all of our work in these podcasts and all the work that you do in, in Wishicken School District and all the work that I do in, in different school districts in the country are under that great big social emotional learning umbrella. And throughout the past two years, I keep finding myself being immersed in reading and research and thought and discussion around empathy and kindness and compassion and gratitude. And today's opportunity to really delve deeply into empathy. When I think of empathy, I I immediately come to a quotation by um, a a French uh, priest and philosopher named Teilhard de Chardin. He says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And for me, that immediately takes me to my role models that immediately takes me to those people who lived that meeting place of human and spiritual at the same time. Because although I have so much to learn and I'm not there yet, that's what I'm heading for. That's what I, that's what I want to get to in this lifetime. That congruity, that meeting ground, that balance of human and spiritual. I think about St. Francis of Assisi. I think about Gandhi. I think about Mother Teresa more recently. I think about Nelson Mandela, who can sit in a cell uh, smaller than this room we're in and walk out in forgiveness and empathy. Brene Brown, in one of her most recent books, talks about empathy. She says, quote, empathy is the skill or ability to tap into our own experiences in order to connect with an experience someone is relating to us. Compassion is the willingness to be open to the process. So Brene Brown's a researcher that I love, and I know you like her books too. Yes. She takes me to a different place in this idea of empathy. I always saw it and felt it as being in someone else's shoes. The word empathy literally means to feel with someone. She's inviting me to a new learning place. She's saying, we need to know ourselves. We need to know our own experiences. We need to be authentic and integrous with who we are. Can I identify my thoughts? Can I identify my feelings? Can I identify how I am before I can be with you. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I One of my things that I like to tell people all the time is when they talk about, you know, oh, teachers are so selfless and, oh, they really just, you know, give it all to kids. I have to remind them sometimes that sometimes self-care 
is the first step to student care. You can't take care of someone else until you can take care of yourself. And you can't relate to someone else's experiences and emotions unless you have a good handle on the things that you've experienced. You can't create that meaningful connection Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because you are not there yet. Mm -hmm. I I love what you're saying. So uh, eight years ago, that's why I created the master's degree in social emotional learning because of what you're saying right now. Eight years ago, that's why I said, okay, in this 36 credit master's degree, I want to make sure that there are courses that do exactly what you're saying right now. So one of those courses is a wellness course. Oh, I love the wellness course. <laughs> yes, so do I. I. That's why I teach it. And and it's about you. If we don't identify how important the servant is, how important the teacher is, how important the counselor is, the administrator, we can never best serve the children. You know, I, I grew up in a time where there were lots of people in service. I grew up in a family like that. But what I saw and then what I did as a young professional was burnout. We can't afford to do that anymore. The challenges, the needs of our children are massive compared to what they were for me 46 years ago when I began this career. There are children in need every single day throughout their population. And and these social-emotional skills, compassion, forgiveness, kindness, just basic human kindness and 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 uh, empathy to be with someone else and to know ourselves is absolutely critically important. There are a couple things that that I've I've jotted down that I want to talk with you today. The whole idea of helping our teachers, as you say, because the teacher, the educator, the counselor has to be aware of themselves first, has to take care of themselves first, and then how do we pass these on to students? So. I no longer remember where all this research comes from. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, one of the men I really love reading uh, is um, Roman Krasnarek. B- book's about two years old. It's called Empathy. And he talks a lot about the things we're going we're to begin to talk about now. He says one of the first steps that we need to bring ourselves to and bring other people that we are serving to, to really start opening the door for empathy, not even to be empathetic, just open the door a little bit, is curiosity. We, we, we want to know who the other person is. We want to know what makes them click. We want to know where they come from. We want to know their background. So in all conflict resolution and in all the challenges we have today in our nation, the starting point to balance, the starting point to resolution, the starting point to mediation, the starting point to understanding is, I'm curious. I want to know. Who are you? Tell me about yourself. That's scary, though. So when you, when you say that, it's, it's one thing to be curious about someone else. But you also have to be willing to be vulnerable and open yourself up. And for many people, their emotions and their private experiences is something very, very private to them. Yes. And sometimes I think very often it's easy to ask someone else to open up, 
but you really can't have a meaningful conversation unless you're willing to do the same. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that come into that, you know, the politeness protocol and a lot of social norms that kind of inhibit us from taking that first step past curiosity. You, you, you say so many important things I want to comment on. I hope we can remember them all. First, you start with vulnerability. Absolutely correct. So in a conversation and my desire to know you, my desire to begin to share my curiosity with you, uh, you're right, takes some courage and it takes being willing to be vulnerable. Um, and Brene Brown talks about how essential vulnerability is in all of her research and in every single book she's written. She literally says it is vulnerability is the birthplace of all human greatness. So isn't it interesting curiosity? Let's think of the great inventors, the, the, the Einsteins, the Edisons, the Stephen Hawking. Okay. Mm-hmm. Think of all the great inventors. They were curious. They wanted to know something that no one else knew. They wanted to know things that no one else thought of before. And in that, they were willing to be vulnerable, to say, I don't know. I don't know me. I don't know this, where this idea may take me. And I don't know you yet. That, you're right. That's a place of great vulnerability. And some people are more shy. I am, by nature, I am. I've worked my whole life to connect because it's just something in me drove me to know we have to connect as human beings. And the research is telling us the same thing. So Karen Osterman at Hofstra University says, the more I know about you, the less likely to ever think of harming you. When there's connection, we, we are healthier human beings. When there's connection, there's more peace. When there's connection, there's more understanding. But you're right, that begins with courage and that begins with vulnerability. Um, and for me, my desire to connect, my desire to understand, my curiosity, which is actually one of my signature character strengths, in Seligman's um, character strength survey work, mm-hmm. tells me that that I simply want to know. I have some degree of, of curiosity about knowing how everything works, not as much as a scientist, but I want to know how you work. Like, I, you know, you and I have had wonderful private conversations, and I love those. You know, I love getting to know you, and I hope you enjoy getting to know me. Yeah. That, but that's the essence of what has to happen in our schools. That, that's, that's the cutting edge of education today. The cutting edge is not in technology. That's not bringing people closer. As a matter of fact, although, although I do understand, and, and right now is an example of how we are blessed with your technological skill and ability, bringing hopefully this message to a larger audience. I understand the importance of technology, but human connection, two people sitting down and talking to each other, you already taking this conversation in a way that I wouldn't have taken it all by myself. That's essential. Yeah. And I think where we're kind of going with this, especially from an education standpoint, is 
there's a level of invitation that needs to happen. So sometimes curiosity isn't about going out and seeking something, but inviting someone to to come to you. And I know one of your biggest strengths is your ability to tell a story mm-hmm. and have that resonate with people. Mm-hmm. So just to touch back on the vulnerability piece again, you need to be vulnerable. You need to invite people in through your experience and ask them to share to create that connection. Thank you so much for that. So what I've come to learn, again, let's go back to the classroom. Mm -hmm. And you want to stimulate that young learner's mind. You want to stimulate any learner's mind, no matter what the age is. And how do we do that? Well, what I know from uh, Dr. John Medina in his book, Brain Rules, depending on where you are developmentally in age, you have to constantly change the learning process every seven minutes, eight minutes, 10 or 20 minutes. 20 minutes appears to be absolute max, right? But for younger learners, elementary school, it's probably seven, eight minutes. Yeah, so the the, the rule of thumb that gets passed around elementary buildings is if... Um, if they're five years old, you've got five minutes. If they're 10 years old, you've got 10 minutes. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I, I would tend to agree with that. Then the question that, that Medina helps me answer is, how do you do that? What works to change? Well, we know that movement, we call them brain breaks, we call them energizers, movement in the classroom, get up and stretch or do it, do an engaging game or activity, that actually works to refire my brain, reset my brain. I'm ready to go again. I can give you another 10 minutes if I'm 10 years old. The other thing that works is story. Changing someone's emotional mindset. So when I first started to tell stories, my stories, my life, I did it because I was moved to do it. It was my humanity. It was my vulnerability. It was, to some degree, particularly early on, my courage. And it was my way of connecting. I knew that I connected with other people in that audience. So when I began to do it 40 plus years ago, I could see it in a classroom. But then as my audience got bigger, I could see it in hundreds and thousands of people. And I could also see in those hundreds and thousands, a handful really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. And I would have people who sometimes were my host or my sponsor, in other words, who paid me to do this conference or do this speech or do this workshop, say, you know, that was really personal. Do you think you should do that? And I never had a great answer. I just felt like this is who I am. This is the best I have to give you. But now I have, at least for me, a better answer. When I'm vulnerable, it gives other people permission to be fully human. When I'm vulnerable, when I'm authentic, when I'm real, the barriers come down. And at soon to be 66 years old, I'm tired of barriers. I, I, I'm, please don't misunderstand me. I know that there are appropriate limits and boundaries for all of us to be safe and respectful. I got that. But for us to make real connection requires vulnerability and authenticity. And for me to do that, even to this day, requires some degree of courage. So when I talk about my life, 
and, and you know this, when I particularly talk about Ashley's story, Ashley, for, for the listeners who don't know, is, is my daughter. She's 34 years old. She is labeled severely, profoundly retarded. That is no longer a politically correct label, but that's the label I heard when she was born 34 years ago. And when I tell Ashley's story, knowing that she has no verbal language, she can't move her body with any consciousness at all. She can't eat food like you and I eat. She's tube fed. When I hold her hand when she's having a a seizure four to six times a day. When I talk about that, in my mind, exquisite vulnerability, all barriers tumble down. I was doing it Friday in a school district. And, and I don't know what moved me to do that. It wasn't even the topic. But I'm looking at an audience, and that audience is looking back at me, and I'm sensing, connect, please connect with me. I think everyone is literally crying out for connection right now. And empathy is that connection. And as you and I are doing right now, I see it in you as you're looking at me, listening. So if the first key ingredient to teaching our children empathy is curiosity, the second is listening. We have to listen to each other. Stephen Covey says, seek first to understand, then be understood. So as much as it's important to tell my story, to give you permission, I all want to hear your story. And I, w- I want to hear that in all of our graduate students, and I want to hear that in children. Wow. Now, how, starting with curiosity, and then moving to this next step, how, what would be a, like a tangible, real example of how to do that? Mm-hmm. Like how to orchestrate that in mm-hmm. your own? Well, let's say, uh, let's go to the classroom for a minute. So let's say you're at the elementary level, and you're doing, um, what do they call circle time? What's that called now? Uh, where, where the children are sitting in the circle. Oh, like a morning meeting perfect, or something perfect. like that. Perfect, Morning meeting is a perfect example. So um, in a morning meeting, you might start just a minute or three, right? Just to start the day. And what's that about? It's about connection. It's about building relationship. It's about humanity. And it's about sharing a little bit of your story as a five-year-old, as a seven-year-old, as a nine-year-old. And that might be, uh, in the first week of school, remind us of your name and something happened last night that you felt really great about, you know? Or um, as the school year unfolds, um, tell us something uh, last night that was a challenge for you and you overcame it. You feel good about that, overcoming that challenge. So in the classroom, it could happen in morning meeting. Uh, It's what happens in, in every counseling relationship, in schools and outside of schools. And the listening piece in adulthood, so whenever I am interviewing someone, either to work with me or as a graduate student or a master's degree student, I want to know about the social-emotional side of their life. Uh, I read their resume. I read their application. I read their letter of intent. And I'm looking for words that tell me about their humanity. I'm looking for concepts and ideas that they've written down that tell me how they make connection with students or peers. 
I'm looking for their passions. I'm looking for their dreams. And that's what I ask about. I can read a grade point average. What's that tell me? (laughs) I know lots of people who graduate college with a 4.0 who know very little about making connection with human beings. The, 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 The news now about almost all of the fatal shootings in America's schools were committed by young men. I, in, in my whole career of 46 years, much of it intervening in the aftermath of a suicide or a homicide, I can't think of one example that I've personally been involved in that involved a young woman doing the killing. It's all young men. And our young men are terribly disconnected from how they feel. And they're still not encouraged to talk about how they feel. Who's listening to them? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it's good to put something very concrete to something that often isn't viewed as so. Mm. So not saying that like, oh, we need to just take care of our young men, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely something that it's, it's one of those brutal facts that we have to be mm-hmm. able to accept so that we can address it. Mm-hmm. And I think education is the best vehicle for this, this type of intervention. So, I mean, it's, it's illegal not to go to school. Right. So at, at, at some level, everyone experiences education. Right. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to, empower young men and women to be able to express and I'm not sure the right word, but be able to digest Mm -hmm. what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. How do we make that a safe space when oftentimes outside of school, Mm -hmm. they don't have that? Mm -hmm. So in school, the research by Dr. Robert Ackerman from the Indiana, Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and I knew Bob 30 years ago, it, the research would tell us in schools, you and I as educators, as counselors, as administrators, as mentors, role models, we are the offsetting factor. So whatever happens outside of school, even if that's terribly negative, we have the power in our one to six to eight hours in school to offset that. Is that clear? Yes. Whatever terrible things happening out there, whatever horrible traumas happening out there, we have so much power in a child's life, we can offset that. So how do we do that? Well, we talked about teaching curiosity, opening the door to relationship and connection. We talked about listening, lots and lots and lots of listening to children. The other thing, as a role model, as a mentor, we need to to talk about the power the importance, the health of vulnerability, of authenticity, of being real, of being transparent. So if you will, I keep using this image of, of the walls coming down. How about taking the mask off? Mm-hmm. How about in the, in, the, in the world of the young man, how about men taking off the testosterone overloaded macho mask and be real? What's it mean when you're hurt? What's a man do? What's he do long before he lashes out in anger, which I hope never happens? 
What does he do with his real sadness? What does he do with his fear? What does he do with his frustration? How does he learn to put those in words rather than stuff it and stuff it and stuff it until somebody dies? Because that's what's happening. That's what's happening, has been happening for my entire lifetime. Somehow, I learned in my late adolescence and into my early 20s that being healthy, I'm going all the way back to what you said earlier, the healthy teacher, the healthy teacher, the empathetic teacher is the only one that can help children be healthy and empathetic. Same thing with young men and certainly young women as well. I just think they have better role models. There's more of a, there's a, there's a better history for young women. We have to let them know that strength is being gentle. Strength is being kind. Strength is being vulnerable. Strength is being compassionate. Strength is being real. Strength has nothing to do with the size of your muscles. That's a bunch of baloney. Yes, I understand that we need to be fit. I got that. <laughs> but we need to be emotionally fit. And that's, that's a critical role that men play in schools and beyond. So I feel very strongly that the words that we use are immensely important because of the relationships that people have with them. So when you talk about strength and how we're really not giving it the appropriate meaningful definition Mm -hmm. and that people are acting under, you know, a false Mm -hmm. identity of strength Mm -hmm. and how we had talked earlier today about how pain, um, and sadness are misassociated with weakness. How do we change those definitions? And starting with the educator, how do educators um, teach themselves about what these words really mean and what they look like so that we can start to do it ourselves? Mm -hmm. Because I know even as someone who's been very invested in SEL since I was probably 12, 14 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. I still have difficulty with a lot of this stuff where if I'm hurt, I don't want to tell someone about mm-hmm. it. I'd rather, you know, process it on my own. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that process happens. Sometimes it gets bottled up. Yeah. And I'm conscious of it. Mm-hmm. I know I'm doing it, but it's very, very ingrained from me mm-hmm. growing up as mm-hmm. a child. Mm-hmm. So I I can't meaningfully do that with kids because when it comes down to it, this has to be integrated. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I can't say, ooh, I'm going to add a little bit of empathy to my lesson today. Mm-hmm. It's not something I'm going to do in my mm-hmm. lessons. It's something I'm going to be mm-hmm. in my lessons mm-hmm. and show it that way. It's mm-hmm. part of who I am, not what I'm doing in my mm-hmm. classroom. Mm-hmm. So how can educators educate themselves mm-hmm. on these more appropriate definitions? Mm-hmm. So a couple things. Uh, first of all, I'll, I'll do my best to remember, we'll go back to you and, and, and the individual adult educator. How do they grow and develop in empathy? And then what do we do with our children in the classroom? There's some similar lessons. So the first step in all of our change and growth process is self-awareness. You just shared you're there. You're at self-awareness. That's a wonderful thing. Many people are not. And I'm not suggesting here that we're, we're seeking to change people's personalities. You are who you are. 
Okay, but the skills that we're working on, empathy is a skill. Empathy is a social, emotional learning skill. So how do we help people learn that? Well, first, I I need to reflect. I need to be reflective. I need to use mindfulness uh, opportunities to to be self-aware. What am I feeling right now? Now, some people are it's enough for them to be reflective and just think about that. For other people, myself included, I would need to write it down. I would need to journal about it. I'd need to write, I'd need to talk to myself through writing. Through other people, the self-awareness is I, I'm, I'm bringing something that's troubling to me. I don't know what's going on. I speak to a trusted friend or professionally a counselor or a therapist. Self-awareness is the first step. The second step, so you're aware now it's assessment time. Now it's self-assessment. And it literally, uh, for me, I always imagine scales, the weighing scales, you know, strength and weakness, strength and weakness. So I need to assess what I'm feeling right now, which I am aware of. Is, is, this, an, is this something I want to share? Do I want to do this? Is this going to help me grow? Is it going to help me be a better version of me? If the answer is yes, I'm going to try to find a way to do that. This, that's where I am at, at now in my life. If the answer is, well, well no, I'm, uh, I'm not really sure about that, then I may put it on the side or I may talk to, again, a trusted friend or a counselor about that or I may write about it. You, 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 if, if the assessment comes up, I'm not sure I want to do this, I'm not sure I want to do anything with it, then you can either let it sit or you can keep working on it. And then the final step is a self-change process, a plan for change. And in our world, that's called homework. And I, and I literally mean that. Anything, now the old research says you need to do, you need to practice a new skill about 30 days. What I'm reading now, it's about 90 days, about 60 to 90 days practicing a new skill. So what does that mean? It means so, so um, your, your willingness to share some of your internal social emotional learnings mm-hmm. may not be the greatest comfort for you. Am I correct? Uh, oftentimes, no. Okay. Thank you. So you have that awareness and you do some assessment work. Well, if I'm sitting with you and I'm, and I'm your teacher in social emotional learning, my recommendation would be this homework. So continue to journal or we'll find a way that you can be self-aware, whether it's journaling, whatever it might be, continue to do that for the next 30 to 60, 90 days. And we'll do a check-in together every week. And then I'm going to give you things to practice. And one of those practices will be to take one piece, one piece of one of these skills. It could be empathy. It could be compassion. It could be kindness, um, which you show me every time you come here and do this with me. You know how grateful I am. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that it now we come to the piece for you and I as adults that I would transfer to the classroom. We need to practice and we need to be explicit in the social emotional learning world. We are still not explicit enough about the lessons. We would never think of not being explicit in a mathematical formula. Correct. Correct. We'd never think of not being explicit when we're on a science concept or a social studies concept or a vocabulary concept. We would never think of that. That's ludicrous in education. 
But in social emotional learning, we assume everybody knows what this means. No, <laughs> no. So break it down. What does compassion, what does empathy look like? We need to sit and talk about that in our morning meetings at the elementary school. We need to talk about that in our advocacy groups in the middle school. We need to weave that in to our social studies and English lessons in the high school. What's it look, what physically, what's it look like? Empathy look like? Well, empathy looks like leaning in. Empathy looks like reaching out. Empathy looks like the, the, the body posture I'm in and the fa facial expressions I'm in are similar to yours because we're being moved. We're, we're, we're holding something in common. There's a similarity, empathy. What's it sound like? We start to dig deeper into the vocabulary. I, I, I love it when, when I'm in a graduate course sometimes and I ask people, I, I share the, a social emotional word, empathy, compassion, whatever. And I said, what, what, tell, tell, me, tell me some other words. And I, I get back, happy, great. <laughs> no, dig deeper. Come, I mean, really dig deep into your vocabulary. So what's it look like? What's it sound like? And what's it feel like? Let's put some of those other emotions into this. So when I talk about being explicit, is that, am I making myself yes, clear? Yes, very clear. So that has to happen developmentally appropriately at every grade level. And if somewhere, if somewhere were to push back towards me and say, well, there's just no time for that, I'm sorry. I've done this for 46 years now. There's no time not to do it. So we have to find a way to integrate Certainly within all humanities that we teach, social studies, language arts, English, etc., we can easily find a way to integrate. Because there are people in the world that we've been studying, the writers, the, the, the people in so, um, the social sciences that are, are all enacting these things. We also need to find a way in the sciences, science is about, is about life. It's about growth and development either at, at, a, at a micro level or a macro level. We need, we need to dig into that. Math has always been harder for me, but I know I've met some brilliant math teachers who can do the same thing in mathematics. I mean, that's why, that's why we created the social emotional learning toolkits to make empathies like, to make concepts like empathy explicit in the classroom. Wow. I think... We've given people a lot to chew on. What do you think? Uh, yeah. Can I share one story? Absolutely. So this is just a story on empathy that it's not my story. It's a story that I really admire. So you may or may not have seen the movie Schindler's List. Did you? Yes. Okay. Powerful uh, Spielberg movie. Great movie. Great acknowledgement. Great awards. So I don't know why. But I decided in preparation for a speech about a year ago to dig deeper into who Oscar Schindler was. So I found out he was in fact a member of the Nazi party. He was using in his factories forced Jewish labor. He was a military informant. 
he was a very poor Catholic. And he had a mistress. He was cheating on his wife. That's the man. Now look at the transformation to empathy. That's the man when the Nazis take control of Germany. That's the man who's living and working as the employer of Jews when millions of them are being exterminated. He didn't have a lot of friends. He was a very successful businessman. His only friend, he would tell us, was his accountant. His accountant was a Jew. It's Stern. He was not only his accountant, he was his confidant and his confessor. So whenever Schindler was concerned, whenever he had his worries and issues, he took him to the only man that would listen. Remember how important listening was in our early conversation? Listening and empathy? And one day, they're watching in Krakow, Poland. They're watching the Nazis come into a Jewish community and they're pulling people out of their homes. They're throwing them to the ground, beating them, having dogs maul them, putting their boots on people's heads and shooting them in the head. And Schindler, the man I described earlier, and his friend and confidant, a Jew, Stern, his accountant, are watching this. And something clicked. Something changed. And he began to work behind the scenes to save his own factory workers, as the movie and as the book shows us. He began to work to keep families together. He began to lie and cheat to the Nazis to save his employees. As the war ended and his factories began to close, the Jews he knew would have been sent away to death camps because there's no more work. The Allies are winning the war. He bribed the Nazis, Nazi officials to send the Jews to Czechoslovakia to another one of his factories where they'd be safer. He risked his life. He gave away part of his fortune to save people who previously he just watched die. What was different? Schindler's list are the list of names of the people he saved. There are 1,100 people on that list. 1,100 people that Schindler risked his life to save. Today, today in Poland, there are less than 5,000 Jews that live in Poland. Of them, today, there are 6,000 descendants of the people on Schindler's list. There are more survivors on the descendants of Schindler's list than actually live in the country of Poland today. He did all that. Why? 
when he was challenged, when he was asked at the end of his life, why did you risk everything? Why did you risk your fortune? Why did you risk your business? Why did you risk imprisonment? Why did you risk your life? Quote, I knew the people who worked for me. When you know people, you have to behave toward them like a human being. We have to close the human gap. We have to be human. We have to become known. We have to be empathetic. That's a powerful story. I didn't know about Schindler the person. I didn't know either. And I think it makes it that much more powerful. Yep. And I, not just the, the Hollywood version. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I didn't know either, but it was my curiosity. I wanted to know him more. So I just dug into more reading. And, and I'm pretty sure I found part of that story in Krasnarik's book on empathy. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Tom, again, as always, thank you. Um, I'm really glad that we had time to talk about empathy today. I'm really glad that we talked about some of the language that surrounds it, some of the obstacles Mm -hmm. that we're going to have, Mm -hmm. but uh, ultimately the importance and necessity of this type of work. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would encourage anyone who has any questions about this to reach out to us. And I'm also very, very excited for our next podcast where we move from this and then go into what are we doing next time we're going to go kindness 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 something we all can do and some a word we've all heard but many of us might not quite know what it means yeah (laughs) all right thank you michael thank you tom